Well, good morning. It's great to be with you this morning, and um, always a pleasure and a joy for me to be with you. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, we're going to look today at verses 21 to 28. The title of my sermon is A Woman of Great Faith. Matthew 15, verses 21 to 28, if you would follow along as I read. Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she she came and began to bow down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, Yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. After graduating from the master's seminary in California, my wife and I moved to Bellingham, Washington. And I went on staff at a church there called Emmanuel Bible Church in Bellingham. I was the pastor of student ministries, and so I oversaw junior high, senior high, and college ministry. Bellingham is the home of Western Washington University. It's a Division II school. It uh, has about 12,000 students there, and they didn't have FCA at the school, but they did have athletes in action, and so I got involved with that immediately. And I met the head basketball coach, Brad Jackson, who was there at WWU, now I'm at WVU, and um, struck up a friendship with him and began doing chapel services for the basketball team. We usually had three or four guys at chapel, and one of the players was a freshman. He was from, he was a local kid from Whatcom County, Washington, a small little Dutch town called Linden, Washington, and his name was Grant Dykstra. Grant had to overcome many things to get where he ended up after graduating from Western. From the day he was born, he had the pressure of living up to the successes of his father, Glenn Dykstra. Glenn was an outstanding basketball player, one of the best in Whatcom County history, who had led his high school, Lyndon Christian, to the Class A state championship in 1976. Grant would later attend the same high school and play the same position as his celebrated father. His sister was a three-time All-State guard for Lyndon Christian, She won a state championship in basketball and two championships in softball. His older brother, Greg, was an All-Stater in basketball as well. His team won a state championship in football. Greg went on to a stellar career at Western Washington in football. And by the way, his two older siblings were also valedictorians of their high school. When Grant was two years old, he was playing on his family's dairy farm, and his coat accidentally got caught in the grain auger. And this started the machine which pulled his coat and arm into the rotating metal, slowly mangling and twisting the child's limb. 
Only his mother's quick thinking and his coat and, of course, the care of Almighty God kept him from losing his arm or from bleeding to death. His father worked for over an hour and a half to get his son's arm out of the grain auger. But the nightmare being played out in front of them in the broad daylight was only the beginning. They wanted to amputate his arm because it was so dirty with all of the grain. The doctors were worried about infection. And the Dykstras were just happy that he still had an arm. It took 13 surgeries to save young Grant's arm. In all, he had 16 surgeries in 10 years. As doctors later used a technique of sewing his arm to his stomach to graft skin to the injured limb. Grant also had years of therapy to help the injured right arm and hand gain strength and movement, but the full use of his right hand would never return. But Grant so desperately wanted to play basketball. I had to give a basketball illustration today because it's March Madness and we're in Indiana, so it's very fitting. Uh, last week I was preaching uh, in the church in Maryland where I, where I was for about five years. I served as an elder there. And I asked the people there, there were probably 400 people there. I said, how many of you filled out a bracket? And there were like nine hands. And I said, I failed you as an elder here. But anyway, Grant wanted to play basketball. And, and in order to play and to succeed, he had to teach himself to become left-handed. When he entered high school, he became a starter on the basketball team as a freshman. He played with his brother, Greg, who was a senior and helped lead Lyndon Christian to a third-place finish at state. He later led his school to a second-place finish and finally a state championship. Listen to this. He broke records for points, three-pointers, assists, steals, and free-throw percentage while he was there. He was not heavily recruited out of high schools, and not many schools thought he could persevere at the next level, but Coach Brad Jackson, the head coach at WWU, thought that he could. Grant finished a phenomenal career at Western Washington University in the spring of 2006. He is now the school's all-time leading scorer. He was a consensus NCAA Division II All-American his senior year. He was a first-team All-American as honored by Dactronics and the NABC, which is the National Association of Basketball Coaches. He was the recipient of the United States Basketball Writers Association Most Courageous Award in 2005, where he was honored at the Final Four in St. Louis. And on March 30, 2006, Dykstra received the Jimmy V Foundation Comeback Award, which was announced on ESPN at halftime of the NIT championship game from New York City. Grant overcame great adversity, challenges, and barriers to achieve the success on the basketball court that he did. And what is even more special, he gives God the glory for all of his success. He is thankful for all of his awards, for it gives him another opportunity to share his story, a story of God's amazing grace. Well, as we come to our passage this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, we see a woman here who overcame great obstacles. Not to become a great basketball player, but overcame great obstacles to get to Jesus so that her daughter would be healed. And so I want to look at this together with you and show you here seven barriers that this woman overcame to get to Jesus. Seven barriers this woman overcame to get to Jesus. 
Number one, she overcame the barrier of seclusion. She overcame the barrier of seclusion. In verse 21, we read that Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. So after Jesus heard about the murder of John the Baptist, he withdrew in a boat to a secluded place by himself. But when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities and several people were able to find Jesus, perhaps 15 to 20,000 people. After feeding those 5,000 men along with the women and the children, Jesus sent both the crowds and his disciples away so that he could spend some time alone in prayer with the Father. Jesus would then walk on the water and meet his disciples, calming the wind and the waves and get in the boat. But when they reached the land of Gennesaret, there were crowds waiting on him once again. And we read in Mark 6.56 that whenever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were being healed. Jesus would then face the accusation of the Pharisees and the scribes who accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the tradition of the elders by eating bread with unwashed hands. Jesus then teaches on this matter that it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles the man, but what comes out of the mouth which defiles the man. After this accusation and time of teaching with his disciples, Jesus again tries to get away from the crowds, to be alone with his disciples, to prepare them for what was about to take place, his arrest his many trials, and his crucifixion. So Jesus and his disciples head into the district of Tyre. They headed northwest, out of the land of Israel, away from the jurisdiction of King Herod and the Jewish religious leaders. This territory is the ancient land of Phoenicia, which is now a part of southern Lebanon on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. So Jesus and his disciples headed out of town, away from those who were continually rejecting him and his teaching, away from those who were seeking his life, away with his disciples, so that he could equip them and prepare them to continue the ministry that he had begun, that that would continue after his death and resurrection and after his departure back to the Father in heaven. And so they went into seclusion. Mark 7, 24, that says that Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. But then we read in verse 22 that a Canaanite woman from the region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And so the woman here overcame the barrier of seclusion and she found the Messiah. And just as I believe Jesus really did walk on the water, I also believe that this event happened within the sovereignty of God. It was no coincidence that Jesus went into the region of Tyre and it was no coincidence that this woman found Jesus when he was alone with his disciples. That leads us to the second barrier this woman overcame, and that was the barrier of gender. The barrier of gender. 
Matthew identifies her here as a Canaanite woman who was from that region. Mark 7.26 says, Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. The person that came to Jesus was a woman, and as you know, women were not highly regarded during this time and in this culture. Jewish men would pray this prayer. Blessed are you, Lord, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, Lord, for not having, me, having made me a slave. There was a third part to that prayer that is still prayed by some devout Jewish men today. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. Now, I've prayed with your elders back here before services before None of them have ever prayed that prayer. I just want you to know that, okay? And men, if you are praying that prayer today, please stop, okay? Please stop. Well, this woman didn't really care that women were not regarded as important as men in Jewish society. She wanted to get to Jesus. Her daughter was in need of healing. This woman had heard of Jesus about his miraculous healing power, And when she heard that he was in the area, she ran to him. Look at her faith displayed in just in what she says to him in verse 22. She says to him, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. She says, Lord, son of David. She calls him Lord. This word was last spoken by Peter when he saw Jesus walking on the sea After Jesus assured the disciples that it was him and that it was not a ghost, he said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter replied, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So she calls him Lord here, Master, Messiah, the Christ. She then calls him Son of David. If she was not familiar with Jewish culture, She was definitely familiar here with Jewish history, and she acknowledges that this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. This is the expected one, the promised one of old. Matthew 1.1, Matthew begins by saying, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is only the third person in the Gospels to acknowledge Jesus as the son of David. She has faith that Jesus is who he claims to be, that he is indeed the Messiah, that he is God incarnate, that he is the Lord of Lords. And that faith that she possesses enables her to overcome the barrier of seclusion, the barrier of gender, and then thirdly, we see the barrier of disease. The barrier of disease. Again, in verse 22, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. Her daughter was not just obsessed by the messenger of Satan. She was not merely being annoyed or bothered. This woman says that her daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. This is serious. The woman could have said simply said, my daughter is demon-possessed, but it was much more than this. It was severe. And so she added the adverb that is translated severely or badly or cruelly. 
The implication here is that this possession was harmful and damaging to her daughter. That she was in a desperate condition, that she was in need of deliverance and healing. This woman was a Gentile. Matthew tells us that she was a Canaanite. She had been raised in a pagan culture known for its wickedness, its vileness. She lived in the land and was a descendant of the people that in Deuteronomy 7.2 says that God had commanded his people Israel to conquer and utterly destroy. She had no heritage of God's word, no sense of his blessing, no experience of the tabernacle and the temple, no familiarity with the priesthood and the sacrifices. It is likely that she and her family were worshipers of a god called Astart and other pagan deities that were popular in the region in which she lived. The fact that she came to Jesus, that she came to Jesus a Jew, a teacher, a healer, reveals that she was disillusioned with the idolatry that made up her religion. John MacArthur says here that her trust in Astart may have seemed satisfactory while things were going well. But when her daughter became cruelly demon-possessed, the mother discovered she could get no help from a goddess of stone. She therefore left her religious system, left her pagan family and friends, left her false belief that had no answers or power, and came to the only one who could help her. By her appeal to Christ, she publicly affirmed his power over her former gods of wood and stone and metal. This woman loved her daughter, perhaps more than anything, more than her own life. And leaving this religious system in which she was raised and fleeing to Jesus would lead to ridicule, to rejection, and perhaps even persecution. But she left it all behind, even her daughter for a time, to get to Jesus, her only hope. Knowing that if Jesus, the Lord God, the Son of David, the Messiah, if he could not save her, no one could. And so she came to him. She overcame the barrier of seclusion, the barrier of gender, the barrier of disease. Fourthly, she overcomes the barrier of silence. In verse 22, she says, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. And then we read in verse 23, But he did not answer her a word. Sometimes you read something in the Bible, here specifically in the Gospels, that is absolutely stunning. And I think this is one of those times. Not a word from the Messiah. Even after this woman addresses him as Lord, son of David. So what is going on here? There's no acknowledgement of the fact that she, unlike so many of the Jews, recognized who he really was, that he was indeed the son of David, that he was the expected one, that he was God incarnate. There's no acknowledgement of her request, a request for healing for her daughter, a request that he had answered numerous times in the past. Not a word from Jesus. Nothing. 
A strange silence that would not be repeated until the cross. A silence that Isaiah had prophesied about when he wrote in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. We could read this and go, how insensitive of Jesus. He's so concerned of being alone with his disciples. He's not wanting to be bothered by the crowds. He's not willing to help this pagan. Definitely not as concerned because she was a woman, right? Well, the answer is wrong. This is, the whole, this is the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel in human form. This is the God who has declared the end from the beginning. This is the God who knows all things, including the secret thoughts and motives of the heart. This, ladies and gentlemen, was a test. Not of the emergency broadcast system and that annoying noise that you hear on your radio or television. But this was a test of the woman's faith. Jesus put up this barrier of silence himself, wishing and desiring to draw out of her her true, genuine, and saving faith. That she would see the kind of faith that Christ de uh, desires from his children. And that his disciples would see a living illustration of genuine faith. And that you and I today, as we read this, as we look at this passage, would see what true faith really looks like. Well, the Lord was silent here, but the disciples were not. And so we see the woman overcoming a fifth barrier here, and the, that is the barrier of rejection. Look at verse 23 again. But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Before the New American Standard was updated in 1995, it read like this, and his disciples came to him and kept asking him, send her away for she is shouting out after us. Jesus was not annoyed by her request, though it was repeated over and over again. The disciples were annoyed, however, by the repeated request, by the shouting of this Canaanite woman. The disciples implored Jesus to send this woman away, just as the crowds had implored Jesus to leave their region after he sent the demons into the herd of swine. This woman was a bother to the twelve, a nuisance to the disciples of the Lord. They simply wanted her to leave. The woman passed the test that Jesus had given her. She had overcome the barrier of silence the one she left her daughter for to come and see, he did not answer her one word. And now she had overcome the barrier of rejection. Twelve men were imploring their leader to send her away, yet she remained. She was persistent. Mark says that she kept asking him repeatedly to cast the demon out of her daughter. She persevered and overcame a sixth barrier. And that is the barrier of race. Verse 24. But he answered and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is not a new concept. Back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, we read that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits 
to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then in verses 5 and 6, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This woman was a foreigner. She was from the land of Phoenicia. She was a Canaanite. She was a pagan, a Gentile, and not first priority. And so we read in verse 25 that the woman returned to her home, rejected by the Lord and sorrowful that she had left her daughter to come to Jesus, right? No, that's not what it says. You got to check me, okay? Verse 25 for real says, but she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. This woman was persistent. She persevered even in the midst of great obstacles and she positioned herself in proper posture here before the Lord. In humility, she began to bow down before him and she worships him. In essence, she says, you are the God of Israel. You are the Holy One of Israel. You are the Son of David. I am not an Israelite. I am a foreigner. You owe me nothing, but I am begging you. I am pleading with you. Have mercy on me. Help me. Please heal my daughter. After looking at the Gospels and the previous chapters here in Matthew, you would think surely this was enough for Jesus to give in and go to her house or just heal from a distance as he has done before. But the test is not over. Look at verse 26. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Ouch. It was much better when Jesus was silent, right? But don't misinterpret what Jesus is saying here. The Jews frequently insulted the Gentiles by calling them dogs, comparing them to the wild homeless scavengers that roam freely in Palestine. But the diminutive form here suggests a more affectionate term for domestic pets, particularly since these dogs eat under the children's table. I have a friend named Kevin who's from Indianapolis, not Kotke, okay? He's, my friend Kevin has been here before when I've preached, and he, he told me this story that he was dog-sitting a few years ago, and one of the dogs turned 12 while he was watching them. It was in Newfoundland, and he was asked by the owners of the dog, make sure you take the dog out for a birthday lunch. Um, and so the instructions were very specific, he wanted a gordita from Taco Bell, okay? And he told me that this dog has always been spoiled, always allowed to eat whatever he wants, and how he has always been fed from the table by the owners. And that is what is in view here, pets that sit next to you while you are eating, begging for a piece of steak, right? And here we learn that Jesus did come for the Gentiles as well, but that the Jews, the children of Israel, are first priority. We see this a little more clearer in Mark's gospel because in Mark 7, 27, it says, let the children be satisfied first. 
Paul wrote of this in his epistle to the Romans in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I don't know about you, but I'm really thankful for the words first and also. Amen. We are familiar with the words of John in his gospel, John 1, 11 to 12, that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Jesus is telling her that the gospel is first and foremost for the Jews. It will be extended to the Gentiles to the region of Tyre and Sidon and to the Canaanites. But Jesus is saying, I was sent to earth to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That is my mission and that is the mission of my disciples. And you would think that this would have been the thing to send this woman away, back back to her home, back to her daughter, back to her idols. There had to be temptation to give up. There had to be seeds of doubt in her mind and in her heart. She must have been tempted to think, it's not going to happen. Be realistic. You're a woman. You're a foreigner. Just give up. But the fact that she was a Gentile was no barrier to this woman. And we see that in her response. And we see finally the seventh barrier that she overcame. And that was the barrier of unbelief. The barrier of unbelief. Verse 27. But she said, yes, Lord. But even the dogs feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Jesus here gives her part three of this oral exam. The first test was silence. The second test was the reminder that he was sent for the lost, for the the people of Israel. And here Jesus sets her up for a perfect response, a response of true, genuine faith. And I want you to look at her faith and look at her humility here. In essence, she is saying, yes, Lord, I agree. You have come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You were sent for this very purpose. You should not take the children's bread and give it to foreigners and to outsiders That bread truly does belong to them. But could I just get some crumbs? All I ask is that you heal my daughter. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you are God and very God. And I believe that you have the power to heal my daughter. And so would you, by your mercy, heal my daughter? For she is cruelly demon possessed. Romans 4.20, Paul, in speaking of Abraham, says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And this woman, through testing, grew strong in her faith. Like Jacob, who said to the Lord while wrestling with him, I will not let you go unless you bless me. This woman would not depart until the Lord Jesus Christ blessed her by healing her daughter, not by selfish demands, but in genuine faith. 
This woman was fulfilling the pledge of Jeremiah 29, 13 that says, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Look at Jesus' response, verse 28. Then Jesus said to her, O woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed at once. And that is exactly what took place. We read in Mark 7.30, and going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Friends, this is great faith. This is extraordinary faith from an ordinary person. So in conclusion, as we look at this woman and her faith, I would ask you and I would ask myself, how is your faith? We have, all, we have been made alive when we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, as we read in Ephesians 2. We have been forgiven of all of our sins. God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. We have all been granted everlasting life, we who are in Christ. Do we have the faith that can move mountains? This woman did. And that is the kind of faith that we should all have, a belief that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or even imagine. You and I are praying for the salvation of loved ones, for spouses, for children, for siblings, for parents, for the salvation of friends and for neighbors, do we really believe that Christ has the power to save? You and I are praying for the healing of loved ones. I know that there are people in this body that are suffering. We're praying for people within this body of believers. Let us pray with persistence. Let us pray with passion. And let us pray in faith. Let's bow for prayer. Father, you are so good to include narratives like this one in the word of God. Lord, to prove that, again, that you were the son of God, that you were the Messiah, that you were God's son. But Lord, you place these narratives in our Bibles for our benefit that we might see what true faith looks like. And I thank you for this woman and all of these barriers that she overcame to get to Jesus because she loved her daughter and wanted her daughter to be healed. God, I pray that when you look at us, you would see great faith in us, extraordinary faith. Lord, we are ordinary people. We are sinful people. We are those who give in to the flesh and are sucked in by the world and influenced by the father of lies, the devil. Lord, we fail you. We miss the mark. And so we ask that you would give us great faith. Lord, as we pray for those in our lives that need Christ those who are unsaved, whether that be spouses or parents or children or siblings or neighbors or co-workers or teammates or classmates. And God, as we pray for 
those in need of healing, even within this body, those who are suffering and struggling, those who are facing surgeries. Lord, give us great faith that, Lord, we would believe that you are able. God, we thank you that you are a God who is able. You are not a God that has been constructed out of wood or stone. You are the true and living God. And you are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. So give us great faith. Give us extraordinary faith to us who are just ordinary people who love you and who believe your word. Thank you for your word. Find a place for it in each of our hearts and use it, Lord, to conform us to the image of your son. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen.